the subject of this panel is what impact did the Vietnam War have on our lives? And it goes beyond whether you served in the military. Some people served and went to Vietnam. Some of them went to Vietnam before they came to law school uh, in the early years of that conflict when <coughs> things hadn't really heated up. Some went after law school. Uh, the ones who went before typically weren't serving as uh, counsel. Uh, and some of us served in combat roles, combat arms roles, but then when we got to Vietnam, they needed lawyers. Uh, so that's what we ended up doing as non-JAG lawyers. So I, I only want to talk about a couple things about me. My best friend in high school died with the 101st Airborne in 1968. Uh, and from time to time, ever since, I have wondered whether the fact that he died at the age of 22, and I'm now 74, had done enough with my life to sort of make it not okay, but to live up to that loss that he had. Um, he didn't get to get married. He didn't get to get divorced twice. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't get to have a life of his own. He died a hero. Uh, his father was a lieutenant general. Uh, there's a heartbreaking picture of the two of them together just before Steve died, of the general in his starch fatigues and Steve in his combat uniform, dirty, probably smelling. That's the kind of thing that the war left with me. And as far as our country is concerned, it commenced the process of poisoning our ability to have discussions with each other about things we disagree about. <coughs> Where it used to be you could just say, hey, look, I think you're wrong. It became the case during the Vietnam War that you said you're wrong and also you're evil. Um, you're a traitor and a communist. No, you're a baby killer. And that persists to this day. We're, we're suffering the results of that as a culture with that. The government essentially lost credibility during the war, not just because they were misleading people about the progress of the war, although that, that happened. And I'm not sure it was deliberate. Um, I don't think when Westmoreland announced in December of 1967 that the enemy wasn't capable of an <coughs> offensive one month before they launched the biggest offensive of the war that he was lying. I just think he was wrong. I think he was dead wrong. I think he believed his own, his own uh, propaganda. And I think that's where we are today. And people said, you, can, you know, you really can't trust what the government has to say. And that's where we are today. We're living with that today. So with that uh, preamble, sorry about getting choked up. That's okay. Um, we're going to start with Pat Vaughn, who was initially an armor officer and served with the 11th ACR, the uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment, a great distinguished unit, and he's going to sort of set the stage with some pictures from his tour. Thank you, Weaver, and uh, thanks for coming, folks. Uh, we hope we can leave some impressions with you uh, that are helpful. 24-7-365 in the impressive heat. 
My tour in Vietnam ran from June of 69 through May of 70. I was part of the 80% of the personnel in country who supported the 20% who were combat troops. I was assigned to the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment in three corps, spending most of my time in Longgao and Xi'an. While I was in uh, a relatively safe position, a friend in the same slot with an infantry unit got a groin full of shrapnel. At first we feared for his life, then his manhood. Thank God he survived and went home to father more children. No one was really safe. My accommodations were sparse. They reminded me of the lawn here at the university. <laughs> My hooch was 10 by 10. I had a cot, a chair, a table, and a wardrobe. I was lucky. I had a plywood floor, so no mud during rainy season. During nighttime attacks, the choice was to get under your cot or try to make it to a bunker. Going out in the open was not an option. It didn't take long to learn the difference between outgoing and incoming. Boom, whistle. Whistle, boom. That's the difference right there. <laughs> Taking a dob kit to shave and brush your teeth was the norm. Tankers would bring water and fill an airplane fuel tank for gravity showers. Late afternoon provided the least frigid <coughs> showers. An outhouse took care of the rest. The, the, way, the waste was taken away daily and burned. Meals were served in a cafeteria. The officer's club was a stark room with a bar at one end. Our legal shop shared space with the personnel office in a primitive frame building. We had two officers. One experienced the other learning and three enlisted men, all college educated, to handle the legal work. There was no air conditioning, but we had a water cooler, courtesy of some creativity by our team while moving from one base to another. Our phones were landlines pushed to talk to the front and other bases. Carbon sets were at a premium, but necessary. Copies with carbon paper in that heat and humidity were impossible. Sometimes we went to the black market to barter for supplies. We worked 10 hours a day, ten, uh, seven days a week. Our time was spent tr uh, trying special courts martial cases, primarily drug offenses, and believe it or not, AWOLs. <laughs> Sadly, we spent much of our time processing divorces for our troops who received Dear John letters. If we had any spare time, we would pitch in with the personnel workload. The highlight of each day was mail call. Most often mail would be delivered at home or given to the troops within 24 to 36 hours of mailing, helping to keep up morale on both sides of the ocean. Our enlisted men regularly joined us at the club on Friday evenings. After my training period, I would take the paperwork up to the regimental commander at the front. This happened on a weekly basis. I had my own personal Huey. Picture this, cigar-chewing shirtless door gunners 
with their black jackets hanging askew. Most of the trips were routine, a few were harrowing. Our forward unit was located at Quan Loi, near the Parrot's Beak, a point in Cambodia dipping into Vietnam. The Ho Chi Minh Trail and the Viet Cong were just to our north. Our Quan Loi office was an old box truck. While at the front, I generally ate and slept with the enlisted men underground. The officer's mess was located in a French plantation house. On the third floor, there was a disc jockey, a la Adrian Cronauer, praying, playing to the troops in the field around a camp on WACR Radio Black Horse. The Viet Cong would triangulate on the radio signal, attempting to make effective strikes on the base. One night they were success, successful, and all the troops in the field knew immediately when they heard over the radio, red alert, red alert, and that's no shit because a round just went right through my number two turntable. <laughs> Next, I'll play a little Santana with evil ways. Fortunately for the DJ, the round had a delayed fuse and exploded in the belly of the house. Also, fortunately, the brass had eaten earlier that day. Note how casual the DJ was with his broadcast. It was not uncommon for him to be stoned while on the job. <laughs> Going to Vietnam was not one of my life goals. Sur uh, surviving it became one. All in all, it was one of the most valuable experiences of my life. 24-7-365, back to the world, home. Thank you very much. So my, uh, my experience was uh, about as, as different as it could be. Um, as I was watching the Ken Burns series, uh, which I'm sure many of you uh, watched on Vietnam, I realized that uh, throughout most of college and law school, I really wasn't paying much attention to Vietnam. Uh, I never had a, a television for seven years, and uh, you know, I wasn't getting the, reading the, the big papers on a regular basis, and you, I'm sure many of you had the, same experience, you sort of knew what was going on, but uh, many of you, I hope, will remember uh, my dear friend Mickey Simmons, who was my roommate throughout law school, and who was a very soft-spoken uh, but devoted activist against the war. He uh, used to read uh, I.F. Stone's newsletter, and he kept telling us around him that the, the war was a fiasco, it was not supported by you know, many of the Vietnamese people, and uh, things were going to uh, go very badly. Uh, it didn't really register too much uh, with me until the Tet Offensive, and then, of course, there was the prospect of the draft in 68. Uh, they were, they were in, in, in my hometown, they were, they were drafting telephone poles. Uh, and uh, so that, that changed things a lot, the prospect of uh, Pursuing a job at a law firm didn't really seem like the best idea. So I applied for and received a clerkship uh, with uh, the chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, Walter Hoffman. Some of you who practice in Virginia will know that name. 
Judge Hoffman was uh, an iconic figure down in Norfolk, Virginia. He had desegregated the schools uh, post Brown versus Board of Education in Virginia when the Bird Machine and the governor tried to all sorts of uh, uh, schemes to avoid desegregation. And uh, he, uh, he ended massive resistance and reopened the schools, which generally was what the population of, of Norfolk wanted. And he was very revered for, in the city, for the courage uh, that he had displayed all that time. He, he had played golf with the school board chair and whatnot, and was uh, threatening to put his good friends in jail, contempt orders. But he was conservative. He wasn't favorably disposed to any war protests. He was a, a patriot. And the Democratic Convention uh, in 1968 in Chicago was uh, not very popular around the district court uh, house in, in, in Norfolk. Um, so there I was, uh, hoping, sort of in the back of my mind, that somehow I might parlay this position into a deferment, but I went poking around for different reserve programs <laughs> and whatnot. And then I was called from my physical up in Petersburg, and uh, everything started to become a lot more urgent. And uh, so I approached the judge about what he might be willing to do to uh, to uh, make my case to the draft board. and. It was very interesting. Uh, you know, if I got the deferment uh, for through the end of June when the clerkship ended, I'd be 26 and I'd be deferred. Hoffman was a really principled guy, and he, and I'll, I'll just tell you a little story. He, he knew himself very well, and, uh, you know, while he was believed in patriotism and all that, he knew himself well. And he, we, he, we used to get these draft dodger uh, cases in the court, people being prosecuted uh, for avoiding the draft. And, uh, and he would have, most of these were guilty pleas, and he would have to sentence these people. And there was a young man who came before him with very long hair, very, you know, prototypical hippie. And uh, Hoffman looked down at him and pause for a little while. He used to sit way back in his chair, practically disappeared. And uh, he popped up and he took $3 out of his pants pocket and he said, come up here, young man. He gave him $3 and he said, if you'd be willing to go across the street and see my barber, tell Nick to give you a haircut and come back in about an hour, things might go better for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but as a result of that, having to impose those sentences and whatnot, he said to me, he said, you know, Ed, he said, I, I don't really feel like I can ask for a deferment. He said, but we'll write a letter to the draft board and we'll tell them what you do and, you know, I wish you, wish you the best of luck uh, for that. So he turned that assignment over to uh, his secretary who who ran the federal court uh, in, down in Norfolk, Alden. I can't remember her last name, but uh, nobody messed with Alden. And uh, she went in the files and found the letter and dressed it up a little bit for me uh, because things were more urgent. And it was better than I expected, frankly. But it didn't say 
the wheels of justice are going to grind to a halt if this young man has to, has to go in the service. So I was called for my interview at the draft board uh, on the request for my, uh, for my deferment. And uh, Mr. Baldwin was sitting down at the end of a table as far away from me as Alan back there at the back of the room, this long, imposing table. And um, uh, I was all primed to, uh, for this interview and to describe myself how the wheels of justice would, uh, would grind to a halt. And certainly the draft laws would all uh, never be enforced if I wasn't there. The whole thing would go to hell without me at the judge's side. So I'm ready to go. And I get there, and judge, uh, Mr. Baldwin's sitting up at the end of the table. And uh, he says, now, which judge is it you work for? Judge Hoffman, sir. <coughs> Walter himself? Yes, sir. And then I started to think I might say something. And the very nice lady who had taken me in, to, uh, the clerk, she put a death grip on my knee. <laughs> uh, you know, and gave me one of these. Uh, which clearly uh, indicated I better, you know, not mess this up. So I got the deferment. I got age 26. And I went off to Washington, D.C. in a law firm uh, for my $163 a month uh, brownstone apartment with 12-foot ceilings, working fireplaces, walk-in closets. I mean, it was palatial, 163 bucks a month. Uh, and... Um, it was three blocks from the office, and it was, you know, it, it just couldn't, life just couldn't have be, been better, except for one thing. I was about 100 feet from DuPont Circle. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, know Washington or remember DuPont Circle, but DuPont Circle was ground zero of the protest movement. The Vietnam Embassy was just, just down the street. And uh, there were bongo drums all night, certainly on weekends. There was occasional tear gas. Uh, the building next door got firebombed. Uh, actually, I think that was a lawyer whose client didn't like the way he handled a drug case, but I'm not sure. There was a, there was a church, ironically, which uh, housed a free clinic right behind me that, that also <coughs> got burned. And uh, it was... Um, Washington was a lively place, uh, and um, I, I have a bunch of photos. I, don't, uh, I gave them to Elizabeth. No, that's no. not them. <laughs> no. I pulled a bunch of I pulled a bunch of photos off the off the web. Of that, that's them. She can hand them out. And you can take a look. But you know there was a lot going on in Washington in 1969, 70, and then came May Day of 1971, uh, which was a pretty violent attempt to disrupt the whole city and the government. Uh, they with bridges closed down and whatnot eventually. But here's the way uh, I I was greeted by May Day. Uh, I put on my little suit and I popped down the stairs at my brownstone and went out uh, uh, headed for work on Connecticut Avenue. And DuPont Circle was ringed head to uh, tail with um, 
troop carriers, Army troop carriers, National Guard troop carriers, the whole circle had been, had been walled off so nobody could get there. There were National Guard troops everywhere, fully armed, and um, it, it, was, it was surreal. Uh, but I, I went to the office, and later that day I got a call from a young man uh, who was a student at George Washington University who had clerked for us during the summer. And uh, he, uh, he told me that the, the students were being rounded up and arrested on the front stairs of the law school. And that day, 6,000 people were arrested and 2,000 detained, whatever that meant and uh, herded into the Redskins football stadium in Washington. And so a lot of us young lawyers were pressed into service to come down to Superior Court to handle uh, arraignments. So they had all the judges lined up. You may have been there. Were I, you there? I was there. You hundreds, were there. Hundreds of cases. Yes. And uh, so, the, so the strategy was the judges would take a stretch on the bench, couple of hours, do these arraignments. They'd bring kids, uh, well, they were, they were all kids, uh, really, very, very quickly, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm almost <laughs> there. And, uh, and the strategy was, this is the legal part that I'll give you, the strategy was if there was a tough judge on the bench, you got them back, you know, you delay as long as you possibly could, and then you wait for a good judge, and then you'd run through as many as you can. Uh, so those were turbulent times. Uh, I want to do just a quick postscript if I can. I went to Vietnam uh, a few years ago with a Virginia Travelers Program. And it's really astounding. I sort of all quipped that we won the war ideologically. There are 90 million people in Vietnam. Every one of them is a capitalist. They all own a business. The Mekong Delta is a resort area. And, uh, and uh, Da Nang, you remember the famous uh, bloody area around Da Nang? Uh, that's all five-star hotels and $800,000 walled-in uh, condos. So uh, it, was, uh, it was an interesting time. I, uh, I'm not sure I wouldn't have just as well not gone through it, but that was my experience. Ladies and gentlemen, Weaver's excellent introduction tells you pretty well what my involvements with Vietnam were. This was before law school. I was a Navy Air Intelligence Officer assigned to an air wing on an attack carrier, which is flown by in our picture show in two seconds flat. We were on station 75 miles off Da Nang in the northern part of South Vietnam when President Johnson made his ill-fated decision that we were going all in. And within the next 48 hours, we were getting targets assigned from much higher authority. We were briefing pilots and sending them off into harm's way. And the North Vietnamese were uh, ready for us, I think, and those on the, the trail some of those planes you wouldn't think could even fly when they came back to the ship, and some in the early stages had to divert to Da Nang where there was an airstrip, one of only three jet airstrips in South Vietnam. We knew from the photo interpretation of the early missions that this was going to be very difficult. We had targets 
smaller than this room. We had men hurtling at them at 300 to 400 miles an hour, and we had no guided weapons. We had a big offensive capability going into a small guerrilla war. Anyway, uh, came back and four months after that experience, I was sitting in a law school classroom. And believe me, that seemed like la-la land for a while. Uh, all of the interfaces that are in this summary are with me still. The Navy pilots, and I proudly wear their insignia on my jacket today, are gathering again, perhaps for the 10th time since NOM at Portland, Oregon this fall. The Vietnamese families that we helped to resettle in the McLean, Virginia area truly became part of the family. Lorraine and I go to many a wedding, to some funerals, and uh, they are family to us and we are to them. Um, my, we never stop learning about Vietnam. You may have heard about this monster that Bob Pearson was kind enough to publish that I wrote in my last year of law school about the 1954 Geneva Accord, which had two frameworks. The first was to learn from the mistakes of the 1954 negotiations between the North Vietnamese Ho Chi Minh and the French and to propose a more comprehensive framework if we ever got to negotiations for an end of the war. Well, we didn't get there, did we? And those pictures of the last days of Saigon sear into the brain even now. The second purpose was to determine whether the elections that were promised in the Geneva Accord were truly meant to be part of the bargain or whether that was a throwaway kind of thing. Now I want to go to the first of two happenings in the last six months that uh, shows that this is never going to end. If you've seen the movie The Post, would you please put up your hand? My goodness. Well, you've stolen most of my thunder, but anyway, <laughs> you remember the Pentagon papers spread out all over Kay Graham's living room and reporters kneeling on the floor coming up with the first stories. And here's the first headline. Documents reveal U.S. effort in 54 to delay Viet election. I nearly fell off the chair. This said to me, that we were working hard, first off, to keep it out of the Accords, which Foster Dulles failed to do, and then to delay the negotiations as long as possible and get UN supervision, not this international commission that was called for. Well, the thing that nobody counted on was that Ngo Dinh Diem, the premier of South Vietnam, who was ignored totally in 1954, found a kind of big friend in the United States which reversed its position. And he came to the conference on how to arrange the elections, saying, we didn't sign this, we're not bound by it. And the election never happened. And the second point that I wanted to mention 
There's a wonderful exhibit still open at the National Archives on Vietnam. Bear in mind that during World War II, the Japan was in control of Indochina. The Vichy French, French gave way to the Japanese. It's a letter from Franklin Roosevelt to his Secretary of State in January of 1944. And Weaver, I'm going to read this little quote and I'll be off the stage. My five minutes of fame will be over. <laughs> I saw Halifax last week and told him quite frankly it was perfectly true that I had for over a year expressed the view that Indochina should not go back to France, but that it should be administered by an international trusteeship. France has had the country, 30 million inhabitants, for nearly 100 years, and the people are worse off now than they were at the beginning. Each case must, of course, stand on its own feet. But in the case of Indochina, it is perfectly clear. France has milked it for 100 years. The people of Indochina are entitled to something better than that. Had he only lived a bit longer. Good afternoon. When um, Weaver was putting together this panel, I started to think about my own Vietnam experience and, of course, the topic of the lasting impact. And I think my experience pretty much mirrored the experience of a lot of the country and maybe a lot of you. When, uh, before law school, I was very involved in the civil rights movement and had been at the March on Washington and was very active, but when I got to law school, my focus changed to what is common today, which was getting a good education and then getting a good job. And I was aware of the cross currents, people like my friend uh, Weaver, um, who were very much supporters of the war, and I was a Kennedy man, so the best and the brightest couldn't be wrong. And then my dear friend Pete Windrum, who kept telling me that this was a moral outrage and, and tried to convince me. But I didn't pay much attention. I was enjoying the uh, benefits of my white male privilege and got through law school and got a good job, got married, got a good job. And then three days before the bar exam, uh, my world changed when I got a draft notice. And um, from my small town in Virginia, I was the first married person ever to be drafted. So I had to think about what was going to happen next. Got into uh, the Army OCS program, uh, was commissioned in the Finance Corps, um, one, and then by a series of events, instead of going to Fort Benning, Georgia for ultimate assignment overseas, I ended up at Fort Bliss, Texas, where they had a slot for a finance officer in a language training uh, unit. And one of my jobs in that position, because I was a lawyer, was to process applications for conscientious objector status. And so I spent a lot of my days talking to people who claimed to, and in some few instances really did have, a moral objection to the war. And 
being in the Army, I started to read more and more and pay attention to what was going on. So I found that the efforts of, and this was before the Pentagon Papers, just watching the practical application of our strategy and began to realize that it was failing and it was doomed to failure and it was not going to succeed in the way that we hoped. So I joined a group of fellow officers in an organization that, as I understand it, was started in the Navy called the Concerned Officers Movement. One of the things I learned is that it is not a good career move to join a <laughs> protest uh, organization <laughs> when you're in the military. My boss, who was in the Chemical Corps, and a wonderful man, called me in to his office the next day and said, you know, don't you, that 90% of the people who were at that meeting last night are Army intelligence, <laughs> and they know who you are. There were about 25 of us at the first meeting, about four of us at the second meeting, <laughs> and that was the end of it. Um, and ultimately, um, the, the Army had its next to the last word because from my unit, everybody that had served as an, in a capacity as an officer was discharged with a, a uh, Joint Service Commendation Medal. Not so much. But I was honorably uh, discharged uh, from the military and then learned um, uh, watched the events that after I got out unfold and including the, uh, the uh, release of the Pentagon Papers. But I think what, what I learned from that experience is that institutions have a life and a, and a uh, ability to move forward much without persuasion from the people inside of it and almost with a certain degree of immunity from the people outside of it. Look at all the protests that Ed and others faced and yet it took years for, for us to wind down uh, that, that ill-fated effort. As a, as a coda for me, this sort of end of the Vietnam uh, experience, I went to Vietnam as a tourist a few years ago, and we were there over Christmas. So my wife and I went to midnight mass at the Notre Dame Cathedral in, in uh, Saigon. And we came out, and for those of you that have been there, the, there's a big town square, and it's just blanketed by people circling on, on motor scooters. And there was an older gentleman sitting there with his wife on his motor scooter, and he was old enough to, to look at me with some suspicion. He did, had no way of knowing that I hadn't been trying to kill him or him trying to kill me. And very somber, I flashed him a big smile and said, Merry Christmas, and his face lit up, and he said, Merry Christmas, and I knew we had entered a, a new era. But it's a, an experience, that whole arc, that I think the whole country is still going through and struggling with. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Stuart Johnson, 
Um, some of the bullet points about Vietnam, I've always had a sense of guilt that I didn't do more. Um, my father was a Army combat grunt in World War II, wounded twice in the groin by shrapnel, evacuated to England, put back into battle. So, and all I did was a bakery and decontamination unit in a civil affairs in the Army Reserves. Um, my roommate for most of um, law school, Bill Norman, who's not here, his father was a general, and Bill didn't try to get a deferment. He went, he went, he went through ranger school in Georgia and was sent to the DMZ in Korea. Not so pleasant. So there are many reasons why I could have done more. Um, as Ed said, uh, when I uh, started my practice in DC as a criminal defense lawyer in, let's say, 71, DC was full of tear gas, especially in DuPont Circle. Um, protests after protests after protests. And we, the public defenders, had to um, uh, be assigned to hundreds of protesters that were brought through the already busy Superior Court. Um, and Lanier Place near Adams Morgan was a hotbed of radicalness, radical movements. Um, Rennie Davis, um, Bernadette Dorn, um, the Yippies, the Hippies, the all kinds of H. Rap Brown, Burn Baby Burn in Cambridge, Maryland, Stokely Carmichael. The whole the whole area was was ablaze almost, especially uh, starting in the spring of. 68 after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. 8th Street Northeast burned to the ground. Um, my, uh, most, most of my exposure to Vietnam-related issues was through my practice. And I, back then I was very idealistic and much more liberal and much more attuned to what you call social justice. And I volunteered to do to represent some soldiers. Um, the main thing I wanted to talk about is, I think it's kind of interesting, and I have looked at Wikipedia to help refresh my memory about fragging. Fragging is a military jargon for an intentional murder or attempted murder by an enlisted person who's mad at his superior officer, usually a lieutenant or a non-commissioned officer like a sergeant. And it was typically done by rolling a um, M26 grenade into a, a tent in either Okinawa or more typically in Vietnam. And there were a lot of reasons for it. There were nearly 900 fragging incidents between 1967 and 72, resulting in some 99 deaths and then, of course, a lot of injuries where the person, did, the su superior, didn't die. A lot of it was racial in nature. The 
African Americans who were not able to get deferments and had to, had to be drafted uh, <coughs> apparently felt uh, disrespected when they became fraggers by their superior officer. And, and of course, there could be a lot um, that went into that. And they, there was a lot of racial insensitivity. And then after we started pulling out of the war and uh, the soldiers that were in Vietnam <coughs> thought, well, gee, uh, what, are we what are we doing here? We're, we're, not, we're not even winning the war. <coughs> Morale plummeted and discipline plummeted. And fragging was a, um, a sign of that because when a superior officer was arrogant and wanted to send people into dangerous missions, sometimes the, the enlisted person took out their anger by trying to kill the superior officer. Now, what happened with me is that I volunteered to represent some of the convicted fraggers. Every year they would, or, or so, they would have a right to have a, a review of the of redu reduction of their sentence in front of the Navy Clemency and Parole Board in um, Henderson Hall in Arlington. And I represented a number of <coughs> those defendants and tried to put forth their good adjustment at Fort Leavenworth with varying results. And then I would go up to the headquarters of the First Army, Fort Meade and Laurel, Maryland and represent um, soldiers, they were always African-American in, in my particular case, who uh, were being disciplined. They were in the stockade being disciplined. <coughs> so um, just a few um, uh, uh, final comments. I did attend the Woodstock <coughs> Music Festival in Bethel. <laughs> the summer of 69, I lived in Bennington, Vermont, my unit was my Army Reserve unit was near there. And a group of hippies that were selling fruit near Bennington College called the Hugs Family because they would give you a hug if when you purchased vegetables or fruit from them. They said, hey man, we, you gotta give us a ride to, Bet to Woodstock. And I said, what's that and all that. I take them down there in my car, they jump out of the car, I never see them again. <laughs> so I'm trying to, um, have some fun in the lake where everybody's swimming nude. And nobody, I noticed that <coughs> nobody would talk to me, especially the women. <laughs> Why? Because I had short hair. I was in the Army Reserve. We had to keep our hair short. And they thought I was a narc. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Dave Skull. Um, I appreciate Weaver's pushing us through uh, thinking about this uh, bygone era. <coughs> Part of his assignment was how has it impacted uh, our country since then, besides its impact on us individually. And how come the country that elected Obama twice has turned around and elected Donald Trump? Uh, Hillbilly Elegy, a book, seeks to help us understand that as disaffection in small town America with their economic fate and a feeling of being left out. I think the Vietnam era had an impact that maybe isn't really appreciated. When was America's finest hour? World War II, right? Our parents' generation responded with huge sacrifice and saved the world 
from evil. And through all our growing up years, the US military was the world's heroes. John Wayne, Clint Eastwood reminded us of this in countless war movies that we all grew up on. And Korea, that seemed like just another, you know, good guy effort to restrain an authoritarian invasion of an allied country. But by the time Vietnam rolled around, um, uh, and the Kennedys, who sent us there, uh, were war hero World War II types, it looked like just another chapter in that story. The folks in the room, including me, uh, who were being asked to go across the ocean and maybe lose our lives or our health, uh, started taking a really hard look at whether this was a good, good policy decision. And the anti-war movement flourished. And I think it maybe is underappreciated uh, the impact that the anti-war movement in that era had on uh, a lot of people, especially small-town America, uh, the anti-war movement had to demonize, they felt it did, the military, uh, the military that had been heroes in most of our lives, um, and embrace the drug culture. Uh, that was what was happening. And I think both of those had uh, created some long, smoldering <coughs> resentments in rural, God-fearing America that they didn't in the big cities. But the main change was elimination of the universal draft and a volunteer army, peopled by who? Small town America. And every time the Washington Post runs a gallery of fall, faces of the fallen, they all list the hometown of the dead guy. <coughs> and they are all, almost 99% small town America. These are the folks who are getting their kids back in body bags, or more likely, blown, blown to pieces by an IED, missing limbs, not really functional. These are our warrior heroes, and they are have afflicted small town America with an awful lot of trouble. Um, my story is, is simple. Uh, when I was growing up, I was interested in politics. That was sort of the family business in Maryland. My father and my, all my uncles had been in World War II. Everybody in politics who was a male had some war record on his bio. I said, this is what we do. So at college, I went into ROTC and minored in, minored in Russian, a Hindi diversion. Um, and actually, in, while still in college, I was recruited by the CIA uh, to be a Russian expert. I said, well, that sounds good and better than Vietnam. So I said, yes. And while I was here, in fine, I put off military service until after law school. Uh, gives me a little more time. And the CIA abolished that program because too many people were using it to get out of going to Vietnam. <laughs> so I transferred from artillery to intelligence. And while I was in law school, I continued my interest in Russia and actually got a master's in Soviet and East European studies simultaneous with a law degree. And so I went up to Washington during my third year of law school and said, um, personnel officer intelligence, I've got all this tra interesting training. Do you think you could use it? Like something to do with Russia. And he Captain somebody said, son, there's a war going on. Have you heard about it? It's called <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> Why are you wasting my time? I said, I spent so much time, nine years studying Russian. He said, 
You don't believe me when I talk to Major So-and-so in the next room? Okay. So, laid out my resume. Very interesting resume, Lieutenant Scott. I think we should send you to Europe. Oh, really? He said, there's a catch. He said, you have to give an extra year. I said, uh, okay. He said, there's another catch. He said, the piece of paper you sign won't say one year. It'll say voluntary indefinite. But trust me, it means one year. <laughs> I said, uh, okay. He said, there's another catch. I said, you might spend your third year in Nam. I said, and then he said, the war might be over by then. I said, okay. So I come home, wife says, you signed what? <laughs> I thought you were gonna be a lawyer. <laughs> I said, I think it'll all work out for the best. And we had a wonderful time in Germany, and then sure enough, I got orders to Vietnam uh, for the, basically 1971. And it was a, <laughs> my delay strategy worked. The war was basically over uh, with the Tet Offensive. The North Vietnamese, who were the, the real muscle, uh, decided they had won the public relations battle, and they uh, had actually also won the political battle because Tet, as some observers have noted, but not many, was not just a public relations uh, sensation in terms of US public opinion, it was also a political masterstroke because the North wanted to eliminate Viet Cong as potential competitors for running the South when they finally took over. Tet did that, they said they sent VC into, uh, into a very dangerous situation. Most of them got shot. Uh, and so the, the North had really accomplished all their missions. Um, so I arrived, I'm assigned to the headquarters in Sakai. My first job was to write a history of the war, intelligence history of the war. So I read about it and thought about things and wrote up a history with some creative ideas, including this observation about Ted. So it went up like four or five levels in the huge chain of command and headquarters. And Colonel somebody decided that it didn't look enough like the press releases he'd been approving for the last five years. So he <laughs> threw it in the trash can and just stapled together all his press releases. And that was the official history of the war. Uh, I, I concluded that the US military wasn't uh, some embodiment of evil, but it was the same huge bumbling bureaucracy that had won World War II and was doing its thing in Vietnam. And big organizations um, do invariably try to sweep their problems under the table, and I think that had a lot to do with uh, the, the way the military behaved. Uh, the truth is, it wasn't the kind of war could be won the way we fight them. Um, the other side, very creative and, and incredibly uh, disciplined, the North, had no conscience about uh, killing their opponents in the middle of the night while they slept. And you can't really protect the people who you want to say support you because there really isn't any way in a grass hut down in the Delta to keep somebody out of your house from coming in and bragging you. Uh, it's, it's really hard to create an army, uh, a functioning government and army. Uh, I had an interesting my time in Saigon was embarrassingly easy and pleasant. Um, to make it more interesting, I got a job teaching at the University of Saigon law faculty 
That's when I would go in the captain and say, hey, want to do this? I said, sure. I had 1,800 students, of whom no more than three or 400 actually showed up for class. The others didn't live in Saigon. It was a draft deferment, uh, but they all took the exam. And I had to write six different exams, and I graded 1,800 blue books. And we sat in numbered seats, and I wrote all these cute little personal remarks. Tom has better handwriting than you do. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I turned them all into the dean of the law school, my buddy, who looked exactly like Ho Chi Minh, and for all I know, really was Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> so a few weeks later, I go back down and say, hey, dean, did you get any response to my comments in the blue books? What did he say? Students do not receive blue books. He said, students do not receive individual grades in individual courses, only one composite grade whole semester. I said, why is that? He said, faculty fear violent reprisal. <laughs> so if they don't know what you did, you're, you're better off. Um, I think the, the lesson is uh, that even the most powerful country in the world with, the, uh, with all the toughest nuclear weapons uh, really can't fight that kind of battle. And for the Vietnamese, it seems to have worked out okay. We sponsored a couple of families, refugee families, in 1975 and 6. And they all seem just as well adjusted as the entrepreneurs you guys went to see. They've all brought over 50 or 100 relatives. They've all prospered. They are working. And uh, so I do think that the uh, Vietnam era has created a political problem for the US. And it really is a sort of chasm of alienation between the better off urban areas and the uh, less well off uh, non-urban areas. It's really because of globalization and just changing technologies. But this is basically part of the mix. Thank you. 50 years ago, uh, right about now, I was a third year law student and I had my wife who had been married 10 months and she was pregnant. And I got a, I got a letter saying that uh, all my, um, my, my numbers came up very poorly in the, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, you know, selection process of all ladies. And I'm drafted. And I was to report uh, within the next 30 days um, to go into the Army. And I spent a good deal of time trying to see how I could make this an easier situation. Uh, and with some, some luck and, and some help from General Electric, a company I had been dealing with uh, and who helped me in this process, I got into a civil affairs unit in, uh, outside of Albany. Uh, and GE guaranteed that I have a job in Pittsfield uh, or Albany if they wanted that. So uh, they, the, what was happening is this particular unit, I should say this because we have another civil affairs person here, Civil Affairs became a branch in the, in the military, in the Army. Uh, that, that means it's, you know, it's like artillery or something, but it's a, a separate branch. And it became a branch really just before the Vietnam War. They had some type, this, after World War II, they, they had units doing this. The idea was that you would have professionals, a group of professionals that could go in, this is the group that I was with, and they could manage a town or a small city that had been deemed safe enough to rehabilitate. 
and it would get protection. The protection you would have would not be the army, it would be military police. It didn't want people running around with guns and so it, so it had to be at some level. It was really pacification. It was a wonderful idea. Uh, and a lot of effort had gone into how to put these units together. So I lucked out because I had a professional background. I was a member of the Virginia Bar. I'd taken the New York Bar. That soon was announced. So I had, they had a slot for me. So I, I got into it. And um, they did tell me, though, when I went to it, they said, now, you're probably not going to Vietnam. But we have the right to send you at any time. And you're in a group. You'll go with the whole group. And we're waiting to see when that get called up. So it was very indefinite. I go up on my first, then I go, It's now it's August, it's hot up in New York. I get on the plane, uh, say goodbye to my family, and I arrive at Fort Polk, Louisiana. <laughs> and it's a big sign outside, it's in the center of Louisiana. It's a big sign outside, I mean a big sign. It says, Fort Polk, Louisiana, home of the combat infantrymen in Vietnam. <laughs> and, and the letters are about this big. And, uh, and it says, later on, it says, um, you will experience all of the terrain at, that you will experience in Vietnam. Swamps, rivers, islands, so forth. Animals, bugs, everything. They had it all. So I spent, uh, I got assigned to a, a company, and that company had a platoon that I was in was about 45 kids that were 17 and 18. And there was 200 in the company and others were like them. And uh, they, I was 25 and I was married. And I, they were there, 17 or 18. Most of them from, were from the Midwest. They were all kids coming out of high school. They all had incredible hand-eye abilities, coordination. They were all uh, enrolled in a warrant officer helicopter pilot program. That's what they were there for. And they would go through advanced training and they would go right to school after going through basic training and advanced and they would be on a helicopter uh, pretty quickly. It's not easy to fly a helicopter, by the way, so they, they were carefully selected. These were all athletes too, most of them. Um, but I didn't know at the time, but I did find out during the time, that the mortality rate for warrant officer helicopter pilots was 50%. So that means half of them were going to die. Now it's 1968, and the war has really picked up. And I'm saying to myself at the end of these kids, and I'd only found out about it when, when you see in there seven or eight weeks, these are the nicest kids, they're so interested, they're, they, they're, they're, they're really like special people. And we did good on all the, 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 the athletics of the thing because they were great athletes. They could do it. They could handle themselves and all. So that was a, it was a real blow to me on that one. Uh, we we came back, uh, and I got assigned to th this unit, and the unit had a lot of professional people in it, uh, and the the job was to understand uh, how to be go into a town or community that had had been somewhat pacified and work with the military police. To restore it, and so it was pretty serious. Everybody wanted to do something. We had that was, I did this for a year and a half, uh, and we had um, 
we had good people, we had very few people coming back to that unit. So it was a pretty solid unit. And then at, after a year and a half, uh, I went down to take a clerkship in Newark, New Jersey, where, which we already had a horrible experience uh, in, the, in the, just the late 60s. They were just getting over de demonstrations and burnings and everything like that. And I get assigned to a unit down there that's uh, larger than the one I was in. And same mission, same mission. But it's, it's edgier people. It's not the same thing that I was experiencing up there. We did try to go around and do an awful lot of very good things. And we went to places like Wilmington, North Carolina for you know, a, a, a two weeks and tried to you know, fantasy manage it and do that and whatever. But what happened during that period that I was there, I was with them for two years, the people, a lot of people came back. People came back into uh, the reserves from active duty and both enlisted men and officers and they were all messed up incredibly messed up uh, and it was it was really sad uh, the terrible attitudes um, terrible physical issues uh, alcohol drugs uh, they had been exposed to everything and they were just it was the joke of it was we're, we are we're trying to be a group of people to pacify people in communities that had already been destroyed and now we've got a group of people coming in here that need to be pacified or they're going to destroy themselves. And, and so we had discipline issues with the company. You know, we had over five, six hundred people in this particular. And, you know, and they, they just were angry because they had this obligation to come. They weren't coming freely. But they were not just enlisted men, they were officers. And I, that went on for two years. And it was, it's the, the point of it was, that, uh, and I also should tell, we, we never got activated. And I don't know that any of the civil affairs units, there weren't many of them, uh, did. Because the military police would never certify that the town that they were given was safe <laughs> enough to go in. So here's a well-meaning program with a lot of thought behind it. And it, it tells you something about the Vietnam experience, which of course we were all close to now. now now we're seeing it by day, lights, and so forth. And we, we, we thought we were going to get activated at any time. But they could never find a town after being in Vietnam for you know, five or six years that was safe enough <laughs> to have a group to come <coughs> in to try to re rebuild it. So it was, it's, it, was, it was a sad thing. And I, I, I'll never forget, though, that the status of those. I followed up with some of those. I went to practice law with John Ridley. Uh, after that, uh, in uh, New Jersey, in a wonderful practice, and you know, I saw some of those kids and follow up. Now they became older, and they just never got their, they never got their stuff back together again. Uh, that so that's a, that sticks with me for a long, long time, and I've always felt that I've had the pleasure of being able to do some pretty important things in philanthropy. Uh, this is my, this is the hat I wear. This is my day job one of my day jobs. This is the foundation for my a favor from my wife Suzanne uh, for pediatric cancer. Sorry, yeah. uh, and we did the same thing with autism. I have a grandson with autism. That's 15 years ago. And it's a big organization today. This one is, is more me. And I'm trying to get the, the Health and Human Services to put a DARPA-like organization in 
Health and Human Services. DARPA is Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's the people that invented the internet. It's the people that did it stealth. It's the people that have done uh, prosthetics, the hands, the thing. Uh, they take on projects in the Department of Defense that otherwise it can't be done. And, and they don't, they don't, it's like venture capital. A lot of them fail, but they really are good. It's a long story, and I'd be happy to tell it again. I want to have that placed inside of Health and Human Services because they have no early detection for pancreatic cancer. And it's just remarkable. The mortality rate for pancreatic cancer 50 years ago was 91%. The mortality rate today is 91%. That's just impossible. How do you even keep that? You have to do something bad that used to, it accidentally could get better. You know? So anyway, all of that, uh, that's a lot of people. And uh, so I've been close to an awful lot of people and, and seen a lot. But that, that experience, I should have said, Eric, and I'm going to finish. I was pretty neutral about the war uh, in college, the first three years. But the fourth year, the 64-65 thing, it got me down um, because I had, I had some, um, I don't know, some courses that were around that we had, there was a lot we're missing here. This was like a, a ship at sea, just rolling a war to me, military. It looked like, you know, uh, Johnson had just given control to the generals, and the generals were going to run this thing, and he was going to do uh, domestic things. He did a great job of domestic things. But it was, became obvious by the time that, and actually I showed up in law school, I was really concerned that we made terrible mistakes, and we were going to pay a real price for this. And at you know, that time, the numbers came up, you know, 52,000 people died in Vietnam. Soldiers died in Vietnam. That's, that's a terrible, terrible uh, number. And so it's, uh, all of that brings back, we were so protected here for three years in law school, and we didn't have to deal with that directly. But boy, it followed up, I saw the result for many years. That, oh, the last thing I'll tell you, the, the irony of it is, they called me in after 40 years, and sat me down and said, you have two pa paper here. It says, these are, the one is a discharge, um, you know, and, um, because they have a, um, yeah, we have too many officers. <laughs> this is a Pentagon program. So, so we, we could, you, you sign out, we will discharge you honorably and everything, but all that's not true, and so we can make the, 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 the count. And, and the other one is, you can sign this, this is a re-upping, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll advance you to captain if you sign it. <laughs> I said, well, what's that? He said, well, yeah. the category of captains is, is not restricted. The category in lieutenant <coughs> is restricted. So you could have to get out as a lieutenant, but we'll make you a captain, but you have to sign up. I said, no, I've had, I've had quite enough. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's U.S. military right size. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I have, if I could have 30 seconds, a classmate of mine. Regular seconds. <laughs> yes, regular seconds, regular seconds. A class, a class, yeah, these are 11 seconds. <laughs> classmate of ours, Jason Amster, is something of a poet, and I told him I was going to be speaking at this thing, and he sent me a couple of short poems about memory. So uh, if I may close with uh, uh, talking about, uh, reading some poems about memories. So this one is called Reunion. Memory tortures age. Our lives but stories recall to advantage or solitary disappointment. 
created by invention or lost in the fog of time. Uh, here's, an, here's another. As age overtakes the journey, the story that is our lives becomes memory. We complete the circle, filling the days with the past. Today recalls when, dim the luster of now. So, interesting. Yeah, yeah.